we just open the scriptures to Second Timothy. We'll continue our series in this uh, second letter to Timothy. What we'll do is we'll commence reading at verse 12, chapter 1 of Second Timothy. As you can see on the screen, I've titled this message Part 3, How to Live Unashamed of Jesus Christ. And just for your interest's sake, I got a picture from Alex and Nia uh, during the week. The one there on the right showing the prison cell. They visited when in Rome the maritime prison where it is supposed that the Apostle Paul was imprisoned just prior to his execution. This is the dungeon that he was held in and, uh, and that he most likely wrote the second letter. Verse 12, chapter 1, Second Timothy. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Philegius and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesphorus, for he has often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. I begin with a question that I've asked in the last two parts of this series. The same question, how do we live in this fallen world unashamed of Jesus Christ and his gospel? And as we know, we should know by now, Timothy was the, a young pastor, possibly 30 years old at Ephesus, and he was flagging in this area. He was under the pump, as it were, with false teachers on his back and persecution on the rise. And, and, and to make his stand more difficult, he was also an emotionally and a fragile and a timid young man. And to top it all off again, he had obviously some health issues that plagued him, according to 1 Timothy 5.23. And so Paul, although in a Roman dungeon awaiting his execution, he is concerned, this father in the faith, who Timothy was a son in the faith, he is concerned not only for Timothy's stand and witness, but he was also concerned for the spiritual progress and well-being of the gospel in Ephesus and also for every church down through history, including us here this morning at NCC. He's concerned. You see, folks, the mission of God through the gospel stands and advances on his purposes and plans that we looked at last week in verse 9. They stand on his purposes and plans using the lives of his people who are committed and unashamed of Jesus Christ. 
But how do we live like that? How do we live unashamed of the gospel? How do we live for God unashamed so to be in sync with God's purpose and grace in the gospel? That's the question. Well, Paul tells Timothy and all of us here from verses 6 to 18 the answer. He spells out, as we have looked at some of them, eight reasons or means whereby we need to have in place to guard ourselves against falling prey to denying the Lord, to being ashamed of him. Just let me quickly revive your memory by citing the first five means we have looked at thus far. The first one was you fan the gift of God into flame. There we are. We need to do that constantly because otherwise culture and all its mandates and everything that goes around us will quickly snuff the gift of God and salvation for serving him. It will quickly snuff it out. The fear of man is a powerful force that Satan uses to extinguish a flame. Well, we need to fan the embers into flame. And secondly, we need to activate our divine resources. We saw this in verse 7, that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but he's given us power, love, and discipline. And thirdly, we are to expect opposition and accept it as we live in this hostile world. Hostility and opposition to the gospel and to the faith of Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ. It's not if it comes, it's when it comes. And then fourthly, we looked at last week, remember God's plan, salvation plan and purpose. We saw this in 8 to 10. God has everything under his control, as we've been hearing something of this morning. And folks, nothing can thwart God's eternal purposes. That's a great encouragement, isn't it? And then finally, last week, we saw we're to understand your obligations to serve. We saw this in verses 11 to the beginning of verse 12. We're to understand our obligations to serve as the Apostle Paul did. He understood that he was appointed as we all are appointed to serve and to be ministers of the gospel. None of us excluded. No Christian is excluded from that because this is God's means that he uses of reconciling sinners to himself. So we are to understand our obligations to serve. This brings us to three more causes of action that we will see this morning or means of guarding against being ashamed of the gospel of our Lord in a fallen world and also, I might say, in an imperfect church. And so we see next, your security is in the Lord, so trust him. We see this in 12b. What Paul continues to do from here on to the end of the chapter is he's used his own experience to point out further means of guarding ourselves against being ashamed of Jesus Christ. He has just stated that because of his divine appointment as a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, he's just stated that because of that, he has suffered. He's suffered big time. In other words, he understood that obeying the obligation to serve the Lord, this had brought about much suffering on his part. But he wasn't complaining. He wouldn't have had any other way. 
And we did look at a verse and have quoted it a couple of times. It kind of sums up his whole attitude toward the Lord when he said to the Corinthians in 9.16, he said, For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That sums up the man, right? That sums up the attitude. And so we need to ask ourselves at this point, what gave this man such tenacity, such drive, such determination? What does it take for any believer to be so driven and committed to the cause and mission of Jesus Christ to die to self and to live for Christ like the Apostle Paul did and like many other believers have done down through the ages? But we see here that Paul states categorically straight after that statement, but I am not ashamed. In other words, in spite of all the trials, in spite of all the challenges and all the suffering, even though now in a dank, cold Roman dungeon waiting his execution, Paul can affirm with absolute clarity, I am not ashamed. And then he goes on in our text and gives the direct reason for this absolute certainty of his unwillingness to flinch in the line of duty. He says, I know whom I have believed. You see that? Folks, Paul's confidence, his security is in none other than Jesus Christ and him alone. Now, if Paul's confidence had been based on his circumstance, if Paul's wherewithal to serve and to minister was based on his confidence in what he was able to do, his confidence would have been up and down like yo-yo, right? It would have been. It would have been something like this. One day there was conversions and seeing many Christians being discipled and matured in the faith. That's fantastic. We all love that, don't we? We can rejoice in that. But the next day he was being heckled by pagans and false teachers and religious Jews. Oh, wow. That's depression material. One day he's been loved on by the sweet fellowship of, by believers in a strange land. And that's fantastic. And many of us and most of us would know the joy of fellowship from different believers from wherever and whenever. But the next day being beaten up, the Apostle Paul would be, and abused by his own people for, for the proclamation of the gospel. Talk about highs and lows. We all have them. You see, if his confidence and security had been based on his circumstances, it would have been a very topsy-turvy thing for him indeed. No security in that. And so the Apostle Paul is saying here, that's not where and what my confidence is founded on. My confidence is in Jesus Christ, therefore it never wavers. Because he is the rock. He is solid. He never shifts. I wonder if you have confidence in the Lord like that, folks. Even amidst the circumstances of life. And we all know that circumstances of life are up and down, aren't they? They can plunge us to the depths of despair. And the next minute we can be up on the mountaintop, as it were. But never, ever have your security and trust in circumstances. Keep it in Jesus Christ. 
And so when Paul says, I know whom I have believed, this belief here is the word pistio, which has behind it a far deeper meaning than a mere acknowledgement that it might be true. After all, the devil believes. He knows Jesus is real. This word believed refers to something that happened in the past which has continuing results in the apostle's life. This is what this word means. In other words, this belief that Paul had, this trust that Paul had, this confidence that Paul had, this security that Paul had was so real, so impacting, so persuasive, and so influential and credible that he was convinced that he, that is God, is able to keep and guard what he had committed to him against that day. That's the power that is involved here. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ on that Damascus road that Paul did, it was the beginning of the journey of faith for Paul. And we all need a beginning. Mark my words. If you haven't had a beginning with faith in Jesus Christ, you are still out of Christ. Just because you were born into a Christian family or a Christian heritage does not make you a child of God. You need a personal beginning, a time where you deal and get down, as it were, before God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need you to be my saviour. You need a beginning. And Paul had a beginning on the Damascus Road, but that's all it was. It was just a beginning. But he knew something more after that beginning of the constant faithfulness of God and all the ups and downs of life that Paul went through and we read a whole lot of them in the scriptures. Folks, here is a man who speaks from now from experience. He's an old man about to die, approaching 70 or thereabouts. You know, it's wonderful to rest and trust in the promises of God, isn't it? And that's a right and proper thing to do when we read of the promises of God and we should just love them and trust them. But it's icing on the cake, can I say, so to speak, when we can look back over life and say, throughout my life I have become more and more convinced that God has guarded me, he has protected me, has sheltered me in the hollow of his hand and he has never let me go. And when the promises and faithfulness of God are believed and experienced, we can say with Paul, though I am fully convinced, or therefore I am fully convinced, that trusting or depositing my life and soul into the eternal security vault of Jesus Christ, I know he will guard and protect and keep me until the day that I stand before him. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And how can we know he can do that? How can we know that God can do that? Because what the text says, he is able. You see that? He is able. In other words, he has the dunatos. That's the word here. That's the all-powerful, never-failing ability to keep and to do what he has promised. So why should we not fully trust him to preserve us in the here and now? If we trust him for eternity, surely that begs us to trust him in the here and now, right? No matter what happens, no matter what persecution, no matter what snide remarks or pressure the culture puts on him, you need to trust in the Lord. 
the word in our text that day here is in reference to the day where every believer will stand before the Lord. This is called the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ where not our sin is, is dealt with because our sin has already been dealt with at the cross, but it is where our life of service and faithfulness and unashamedness is assessed before the Lord. You can read more about that. You read 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And you read of that day when believers will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And so Paul was convinced that nothing in this world could ever sever him from that coming day when he would be forever with the Lord. He also refers to this day later on in the second letter in chapter 4 verse 8 when he says this. In a future day there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who love his appearing. So folks, every born-again believer is going to get a crown of righteousness. Those who love his appearing on that day. You see, Paul knew and was convinced that nothing could separate him from the love of Christ, no matter what trial he had to face on earth. He knew and was convinced absolutely, totally in the promise that Jesus made concerning his sheep. This is what Jesus said in John 10, verse 28, 29. I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. That's a wonderful promise, isn't it? And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's double security, I call it. You see, folks, Paul's confidence and security was, it wasn't, wasn't in a doctrine. It wasn't in some theological treatise or some creed that the church has written out. Many people are like that, you know. Their confidence and trust is in some doctrine. It, it wasn't in a, a denomination. His confidence wasn't his family heritage. His confidence wasn't his, even in his own intellect, and Paul was a bright man. He was a scholar in his own right. His confidence wasn't in his scholarly abilities. His confidence wasn't even in his fellow brethren or his fellow apostles. It's great to have great people around you and people who sharpen you like iron, as it were. But his confidence wasn't in those kind of people. Now, his security was rock solid in God alone through Jesus Christ alone. Now, although Paul knew whom he believed, there was also a lot that he did not know, just like us. For example, Paul didn't know exactly what the next day was going to bring him. He, he didn't know what hardship or trauma was around the corner for his own life. He, he didn't know what kind of response he was going to get to the to the to, to ministry, to the believers or to the unbelievers where he's preaching. He didn't know the kind of response he was going to get to his ministry. So there was a lot that he did not know. But he can say with absolute confidence, this I do know. I know Jesus and I know that he is able to keep his promises to me. I know he is able to deliver me on the commitment that he has made to me. I wonder if you have that intimate knowledge and trust in Jesus Christ this morning. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, he's saying to the Ephesians, and he's saying to you and me, you need to make sure that your confidence and security is in Jesus Christ. My dear people, to guard against 
being ashamed of the Savior and his gospel, our security for the present and eternity needs be in him alone. A seventh means of guarding against being ashamed of the Lord is is holding fast to biblical doctrine. We see this in verses 13 to 14. Listen to how Paul puts this. He says, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Jesus Christ. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So what Paul is doing here, he's calling on Timothy and to all of us to hold fast to sound biblical teaching or to hold fast to the apostles' teaching, as did the early church in Acts 2.42, where it said they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayer. It is true that while Jesus Christ is our ultimate security, the doctrines of Scripture, the words of Christ, the truth about the Lord Jesus are also of vital importance. And this, is why, and this is where so many believers today, sad to say, come unstuck. They fail in being guided and convicted by truth about Christ as recorded in the Scriptures. They have a, I love Jesus, but I'm not too captivated about his word and the study of it, etc., etc. They have that kind of thinking. The people are satisfied the fact that they've escaped the the jaws of death and hell and and, and have their sins forgiven but they don't go any further. They don't worry too much about the teachings and the doctrines of Scripture, sad to say. And the church big time has fallen prey to this mindset. Sad to say the church has become very much like the world where any belief system or any theology or any new idea seems to be valid or have a place. And any who would teach the dogmatic truths of Scripture are seen to be unloving, divisive, and argumentative. And because of this mentality, holding fast to biblical doctrine has generally fallen on hard times in the church today. And as a result, as a result of that, Paul's description of the last days in the church is so up-to-date and valid. Let me read it to you. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. The time is coming, Timothy says, when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers that suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Man, we see that big time today in the church. And because of this, many churches and individuals, they have no clear, deep conviction that will provide courage in the face of any opposition. Because when opposition comes, they don't know the truth, and so they don't know how to defend the truth, and so they say, well, it may be valid, but maybe not, and so they let it pass by. In other words, before you face opposition to the gospel in whatever shape or form, can I urge you, you need to know the doctrines of Holy Scripture. For you need to know what you believe, and you also yourself must believe it, like Paul did. Speaking to a pastor a while back here in Adelaide, 
He informed me that he shies away in his preaching and his teaching from biblical doctrine. I said, oh, okay. And his reason was that because there are so many views out there and different opinions of what this means and what that means, etc., 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 that I don't want to come across being divisive and argumentative, so I just give them a whole plethora of choices and say, you take your pick. I was sort of hanging there with my mouth open. I didn't have to say anything because one of my colleagues was there. And he said, well, I have a different idea on that, he said. And he chipped in. He says, when my pastor steps up into the pulpit and begins to preach the word, I want to be like those Old Testament saints and hear my pastor as if he were a prophet and say, thus saith the Lord. And so it should be, right? We also see something else here in our text, that we're to retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. In the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Notice that last phrase. In the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This would remind us here of the right balance that we are to keep in our defense of the gospel or our witness of the gospel to unbelievers and even to believers. To whoever we're speaking to or whoever we're communicating with. This means that we are to, we are to stand and affirm and defend the doctrine of Scripture in a faithful, loving, gracious, and a compassionate manner. This is what it's talking about here. In the faith, that is, with absolute confidence that the faith once handed down to the saints is of God and none other. But in our defense of the doctrines of Scripture, it must not be in a manner that is offensive. And I know, you know, we can easily get carried away in that quarter, right? You know those JWs knock on your door? Two minutes and you're in a heated debate. Or the Mormons or whoever. Or maybe with some other fellow Christian who doesn't quite agree with your stance of theological conviction. You see, the truth of Scripture itself, believe you me, will offend people. For example, you tell an unregenerate he's a sinner in the sight of God and God's wrath is upon him. He will be or she will be generally offended big time. I've had that. Dear, dear friends of ours, and I confronted with that, and she was horrified, her particularly. And her excuse was, but look. And then she compared herself with all the other bad people around and how good she was. And she was offended that I would think. I said, it's not what I think, it's what God says. So the truth of Scripture, when you shine light into a dark heart, it will be offended. But that's good. I love people getting offended at the truth of God. But you want to make sure how you come across and your style of defending the Scripture is not what gives offense. Because it easily can. For example, I absolutely believe in the, as you know, the Reformed doctrines of grace. But in my defense of them, Shame on me if I become arrogant and belittling to any who might not be there yet. This takes courage. It takes perseverance. It takes compassion. The doctrines of Scripture are never to be held onto like a cold heart and hard and sensitive theory that only produces cold and sensitive Christianity, I might say. And we know people like that. They have it all up here, 
But when it comes to practice, when it comes to fleshing the truths of Scripture out, cold, hard and insensitive. That's not what the gospel is all about. And so Paul here is concerned not simply that we know the, the theoretical truth of God's word, but that the truth of God is worked out in our experience and in our life and in our faith and our love toward others. That's what he's concerned about. So how do we do this? Where do we get the wherewithal? Where do we get that compassion? Where do we get that restraint from allowing the flesh to rise up and argue wrongly? The answer is here, the Holy Spirit. Just as God has the dunatos, the ability, the power to guard what we have entrusted to him, that is our souls and lives as we saw in verse 12, he also gives us the power, that is the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, to guard the treasure, the gospel, the truth, the gift of Christ, which he has entrusted to us. He just doesn't give us and walk away. The indwelling spirit is there to guard and protect and nurture and build it up so that we can use it for his glory. But can you see the, the deal going down here, folks? There's two sides of the coin here. We have committed... We have deposited our lives, our eternal souls, into the safekeeping of God. And we know and are convinced of that absolute security, right? That's one side of the coin. And we love to dwell on that. And we love to relish in it. That I'm safe and secure in the arms of Jesus and so very, very true. And nothing can pluck us out of his hand. But the question for us is this. How secure, how safe is his God's deposit of truth in us? That's the other side of the coin. Will we go soft? Will we deviate or be indifferent or cower off when it comes to defending that truth he has given to us? My dear people, the most solemn responsibility for any believer is what he or she does with the truth of God, with the doctrine of holy writ. Why? as we all one day will stand before God and be assessed for how we have treated it. So in order to be unashamed now and in that day, we need to hold fast to biblical doctrine. Finally, we see that another means of guarding against being ashamed of the Lord and his people is to hang out and serve the Lord with the right kind of people. That heading may be a little bit loose for some of you, but kind of come up with it in the end. We know what it means. You know, the greatest disappointments in life of the ministry in the church is never about lack of finance. It's never about a building that's about to be ripped away from us. It's never about the lack or the small number of baptisms. And even the rejection of unbelievers they're not the greatest disappointments. It often lies in the lap of those who are nearest and dearest to us. Because this is what happened to the Apostle Paul. In these four verses, what we see here is a contrast between fellow workers who were ashamed of the gospel and those who were not ashamed of the gospel. Here we see something of the bittersweet that I mentioned last week when it comes to serving the Lord with fellow believers. We see those who were ashamed of the gospel and deserted Paul when the going got tough. 
It is recorded of this first group, it says all those who were in Asia turned away from me. Imagine that. This is a massive amount of people. They turned away from him. Actually, and he highlights, I believe, two leaders of this moving away, as it were. And more than likely, they were known to Timothy. These two guys, Philegius and Hermogenes. These deserters, these defectors, I call them, they did not want to be found even guilty by association in any way, shape or form with the Apostle Paul. They no doubt feared for their lives as persecution was on the rise, as difficulty was on the rise, and they could think, well, we're going to be chucked in prison. Our heads are going to be chopped off as well. And so they took off, deserted him. Folks, to be rejected by the world is one thing. But who cares, right? That's part and parcel of being a true Christian. We'll be rejected. As Christ was rejected, he was persecuted, so will we. But to have fellow brothers and sisters desert you because of cowardice in serving the Lord is extremely painful. Extremely painful. But this happens. It happened back then and it still happens today. The question is, how can I be protected? How can I guard myself from being ashamed of the gospel and becoming a deserter in some shape or way or form like this group? This first group. How can I protect it from that? Well, I don't have to go over all the last seven reasons, but there they are. They give us clear answers. But there is one more here. And it's bound up in the biblical principle that actually Paul has discussed on other occasions, and especially to the Corinthian believers. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15 and 53. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's a great principle. In other words, if I or you hang out and fellowship with spiritually courageous believers, our own bravery and nerve will be reinforced to stand firm when the going gets tough. Do you hear that? But on the flip side, if we hang out and fellowship with those with less steel and valor in their souls, we'll be soon tainted with the same. And folks, this is why we must always choose wisely those whom we spend greater amounts of time with. This is not saying we're not to spend time with unchristians, but be careful. Be careful. Your first priority should be with fellow believers. And even within fellow believers, those who are courageous and stand firm and will help you and encourage you, inspire you. God uses people like that in our lives. Because we see here that although Paul was largely deserted, we see the second group in verse 16 onwards was a contrast to the first group. These few good men, these few good household families, they were not turncoats. Praise the Lord for people like that. Amen. They were not turncoats. They were not ashamed or afraid of being associated with this bedraggled, sorry sight of a man, Paul in prison for the gospel's sake. They were not ashamed of that. They showed this by refreshing him, the scripture tells us, by visiting him, by searching diligently out in Rome to find him. They were putting their lives on the line here at risk by doing such. They served him and never deserted him when it was really tough for the apostle. 
My dear people, how do we live and serve like this? How do we live as servants of the Lord without ever being ashamed of the gospel in the here and now till the coming day of the Lord? How do we do that? May it be that we learn and grow to be servants in the ministry like Onophorus was with Paul. Let's be encouragers and never deserters. And to be a deserter, you don't have to turn your back and walk away and never see us again. You can be a deserter by just being perhaps indifferent or showing not too much interest. Let's be an encourager. Let's be like Paul and say with conviction, but I am not ashamed. Amen. The closing hymn we're going to sing says a lot about what we do not know. A little bit like that song back in the 60s or 70s. You will not remember it, but I do. It's something like, I don't know much about history. I don't know much about geography, etc., etc. Then it goes on. I'll forget the rest of it. But this is a little bit like that. And it says something in one of the verses, I don't know how God's saving grace works towards me. I don't know. I don't know why his mercy was set upon me. Or I don't know how God's spirit works for my favour, etc., etc. It says a whole lot about we don't know. But the chorus affirms five times over, that's if we sing the whole hymn, I'm not too sure, or we will, what we need to know and what we should know in order to be live unashamed of Jesus Christ. And so what I wanted you to do here this morning is to stand and affirm your loyalty and your security in the Lord by singing this hymn together. I'll ask our musicians to come forward. I know whom I have believe.